Welcome to California Groundbreakers, which focuses on the place that starts trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done nationwide and around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. We've created a podcast series called This Changes Everything, which focuses on what California will look like in the post-pandemic future. We're talking with California groundbreakers about how they see the Golden State changing for the better or for the worse, or still to be determined, as we move out of shutdown. If you like what you hear, please help us continue by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support Us link on our SoundCloud podcast page or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. The pandemic put art institutions around California into a tailspin. They're dealing with budget cuts and revenue shortfalls due to the long shutdown. And they're facing a reckoning with the systemic racism in the art world as they try to bring more inclusivity and diversity into their workforce and the artwork they hang on their walls. Now, as California opens back up, how is that all working out? What progress have museums and art groups made in diversifying their staffs, their exhibitions, their permanent collections, and their audiences over the past year? And will any of us look at art and the meaning of it in the same way again? Join us as we talk with two people who present great works of art to the public, but do it in very different ways. Thomas Campbell is CEO and director of the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, which include the Legion of Honor and the De Young Museum. He came there after leading one of the world's premier art institutions, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Andre Jones is an illustrator, designer, and muralist who creates his art under the name Natty Rebel. He is also founder and director of the Bay Area Mural Program, which turns bare, blighted walls into art murals reflecting the communities they're created in. They will tell us what art in California will look like in the future, and how the process of creating it, appraising it, and presenting it to the public has forever changed. Hi everyone, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Executive Director of California Groundbreakers, and thank you for tuning in today. When I think about art and the impact art can have, there's a quote I love that really sums it up by the German playwright Bertolt Brecht. He's most famous for the Three Penny Opera and the song Mac the Knife. He said, Art is not a mirror held up to reality, but a hammer with which to shape it. I think his quote really rang true last year in 2020, when the art world was shut down by the pandemic and then turned totally upside down after the murder of George Floyd shone a bright spotlight on the issues of racial inequity, inequality, and injustice. And just as they have done for centuries past, artists are picking up their hammers to shape reality and show us what this totally transformed world looks like now. So I thought it would be great to talk to two people who are using art as hammers here in California to shape our post-pandemic world. These two men have very different cultural backgrounds, and they work in very different parts of the art world. And that may come across when you listen to the two parts of this episode. The first person I interviewed in the high ceiling halls of one of the museums he runs. The second person I interviewed in his car as he was taking a break from painting a mural to buy supplies at Home Depot. But Thomas Campbell of the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco and Andre Jones of the Bay Area Mural Project share some similar opinions and strong points of view about the art world and how it needs to be shaken up. And they both show how the creation of art and the appreciation of it can be a common bond and a strong bond that brings together people from different backgrounds, places, and perspectives. 
So let me introduce Thomas Campbell. He is director and CEO of the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco, which oversees the DeYoung Museum in Golden Gate Park and the Legion of Honor Museum, which is near the Golden Gate Bridge. Before that, he was director and CEO of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City for eight years, between 2009 and 2017. And while leading the Met, Thomas did some very ambitious things. He strived to bring more modern and contemporary art to museum that's focusing on art done before the year 1900, mostly, and to use technology to create a vast library of digital art. Now, full disclosure, Thomas stepped down from the Met under pressure because even though the museum had record attendance during his time there, his plans were not received by some of the Dwarf trustees, curators, other staff members. So Thomas then received the Getty Foundation's Rothschild Fellowship for Research and Study, which took him to the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. And in his fellowship, he focused on digital art and how art might offer a gateway to promote understanding in an ever more connected but ever more divided world. He started his new job in San Francisco in late 2018, and a little more than a year later, well, we all know it happened. But as 2020 brought tough economic times and a racial reckoning to museums, Tom has been addressing that. He is currently focusing on plans to make the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco a non-racist institution. So we're going to talk to him about his plans for the future of art here in California. And I appreciate you joining us, Tom. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me to be with you. So my first question for you is, what enticed you to take the top job here in San Francisco, especially when your life and career has been spent mainly in London, where you grew up, and in New York, which obviously is a, a major art um, hub? What, what brought you here to California, and why did you decide on this position? Well, I, I started my career in London, but I moved to New York in uh, 1995. And I spent 20, 23 years in New York at the Metropolitan Museum, first as a curator and then as director, which was a, a great privilege and experience. But I had always enjoyed traveling around the States. And after I stepped down from the Met in 2017, as you mentioned in your introduction, I spent time out at the Getty. I really enjoyed being in California. I've, I have been over the years really struck by the kind of the new energy in the cultural sector in California. So <clears throat> when the search committee for the Fine Art Museums reached out to me in 2018, I was really attracted by the idea of moving out here, um, moving to a city, San Francisco, that had such a history of activism, of social engagement, uh, and of course, the proximity of Silicon Valley. So I thought it was a really interesting combination of factors in direct proximity of these two great museums. So it was it was very exciting. I I guess also the Met is a kind of quite a it's a beer moth. You know, it's it's a tanker in the ocean, it takes three miles to turn around. And I was excited also about the idea of coming to an institution where I could have more of a hand on the tiller, a lighter touch on the tiller at a time of change. Of course, I didn't quite expect as much change as we've had. Who did, right? <laughs> and I wanted to ask you about California art or art in California. What what your view of it is? It, it feels like, to me at least, California is spoken so much about how we shape and create technology, uh, entertainment, um, 
we set trends in many ways, but our, I'm, I'm, I don't hear as much about, um, maybe that's just me, but I, I was wondering from your point of view, uh, how you view California art, you know, who creates it, what they create, how we Californians perceive and appreciate this art. Um, that's part one of the question. And I, I, what is, what is the, um, fine arts museums role about the regard of art in California? So maybe to answer that question in reverse, uh, the fine art museums have a very active exhibition program. And in fact, the largest exhibition program in Northern California. So part of our role is to bring art from around the world to the Bay Area. And we do that, I think, you know, very effectively. But in terms of Californian art, I think that we have an especial responsibility to champion the art of, of California, of the West, and a kind of West Coast perspective. S so much of the traditional canon um, of modern art is, it's really dominated, has been dominated by the East Coast and by the New York School. And I think that we're now, you know, culturally we're going through a kind of a recalibration and a reassessment a, a, a broad recognition that there's so much else going on and one of the things that i think is really interesting is the you know the creativity that's been here in california you know over an extended period of time um you know and you know just looking at more recent history from the the californian impressionists through to you know great artists you know like Wayne Thiebaud who are very you know still at the age of 100 very active today and then of course um there's a whole other dimension to californian art uh the the, the art of the, the 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 native americans who are here before the white settlers so i think we have a a really important responsibility to explore and celebrate the art of of this area in every in every respect so my next two questions are focused on the impact of 2020 uh, in two major ways. First one, financially. I, I think it's very interesting how you started your, your two uh, jobs as CEO of major uh, arts institutions uh, right around the time that two of the nation's toughest times in history hit. Uh, you started the Met right when the Great Recession hit us in 2008, 2009. And then you took the position in San Francisco at the end of uh, 2018, you had a year, and then the pandemic hit. Obviously, that was tough financially both times. I'm wondering what you have learned about running art institutions during tough financial times and what the results you see them as um, impacting the arts institutions and and us as patrons. Well, I guess the first lesson is don't panic. <laughs> um, but you know, I I guess that when I was at the Met, I had the benefit of having been a curator there for thirteen years before I became director, and I had a clear mandate from the board to basically sustain scholarship while at the same time modernizing the museum in many respects. So as we went into the, two, you know, as we, as I dealt there with the impact of the 2009 recession, um, I already had a, a, a strong sense of the direction I was going. 
and was able to make you know sometimes very difficult decisions around where we wanted to go in in the future. And I think similarly, um, you know, while no one had any expectation of COVID or its very strong impact on every sector of society, I had the uh, the benefit that we had just done a strategic plan as we went into the COVID crisis. So we were able to um, make quite a lot of decisions that we had to make, again, based around where we wanted to go. I think another really critical factor that I learned in both locations, both in 2009 and uh, in, in 2020, was the, the kind of the critical importance of transparency and listening to people. You know, very early on during the COVID pandemic, we made a decision to try and keep as much as possible to keep our staff in place. And really so that when we came out the other side of COVID, we'd be able to hit the ground running again. That was a critical decision. And then working with staff, um, there were great challenges to face, primarily economically. But at the same time, I think the, the very challenges stimulated remarkable uh, kind of creativity. You know, we, we launched a recovery fund really quickly that got us out there with our donor community. We launched program, even though our exhibition program was thrown up into the air and basically fell apart, we launched new initiatives really quickly, um, like a, an open invitational exhibition for Bay Area artists. We, we, seg we quickly segued from in-gallery teaching to, to having engagement with our audiences online. And so, you know, it was a, it was a, a year of experimentation, thinking outside the box. It was really tough, but it was also very exciting. Uh, and I feel that, you know, we learned many things, some of which will we'll carry forward with us. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, the racial reckoning that just, again, has been affecting so many uh, parts of our, our life and industries and, and the art world. I, uh, I wanted to read a blog post that you wrote, or at least a part of the blog, a blog post that you wrote uh, for the the De Young Museum. Uh, it's titled "Becoming an Anti-Racist Institution," and so obviously George Floyd was a big impact. And so I'm reading here what you wrote. Like millions of others, I was forever changed by that video. Listening into the national debate in the following days, I began to understand with new clarity the scale and toxicity of societal racism of which this action was a symptom. For the first time, and I am ashamed that I had not fully appreciated this sooner, I realized that the Black Lives Matter movement was a critical battle that I too had a moral obligation to be part of, not a political issue that I could assume was being addressed by other people. I also realized how vital the role of cultural institutions like museums will be in informing, contextualizing, and supporting our nation as it urgently addresses the systemic racism that has plagued us for centuries. And in there, I, I'm not going to uh, read everything, but I, you had mentioned there that there was um, a town halls, um, Zoom meetings with the staff, and there was a lot of pent-up anger, frustration, comments uh, that opened your eyes uh, in many ways. So I wanted to ask you about particularly that blog post and particularly those discussions you had with staff, how how all this has shaped your view of the art world 
um, where you are, maybe in general, and how that has shaped your efforts to make uh, the museums uh, a non-racist institution. Yes, I think that this is the this is the most important issue uh, that the whole cultural sphere is engaging with. It's been a a year of reckoning, a year of of learning, and I certainly, for me, it's it's been the most eye-opening, humbling, uh, but also inspiring year of my professional life. I think I previously I had thought of myself as being quite progressive. You know, at the Met, a big uh, priority for me was to grow and expand our audiences, to diversify our audiences and to diversify our program. And I similarly brought that ambition with me when I came to San Francisco. But I, it wasn't until this year that I realized, I came to realize the degree to which so many cultural institutions, without perhaps meaning to be, are systemically racism, ra- racist. You know, we show art, art made, much of the art we show was made by white artists for white patrons and has continued to be interpreted and cherished by a predominantly white audience. And you know, I think museums have made great strides since the civil rights movement in beginning to become more self-conscious about these issues. But last year really brought it home how much more work there is to do and how urgent it is if we truly want to serve all audiences and to be equitable. And you know, I've like everybody. I've been, you know, reading uh, a great deal about this subject. But for me, perhaps the most important part has been listening. I, I was I was fortunate that we already had at the fine art museums a kind of a self formed group of staff, many young staff, who were very focused on issues of inclusivity, diversity, equity, and accessibility. And over the last 18 months, I've spent a lot of time listening to them, talking with them, trying to figure out what we're doing right, where we're, where we're not doing the right things, where we have, maybe where we haven't even started. And it's, you know, it's, it's been tough. I mean, some of those conversations have been really painful uh, for, for, for many of us. But I think we're coming out you know, I think we're now we've we've totally rewritten our strategic plan, centering uh, DIEA values as kind of the pursuit of DIE, DIEA values as key tools, key elements of our strategic plan, and the ramifications are profound. Uh, whether it's in terms of our exhibition program, which we've totally rethought whether it's the ongoing process of acquisitions, whether it's our programs, our educational programs, whether it's the way we greet our visitors, trying to make everybody feel, create an environment where everyone feels comfortable and cared for and welcomed. And most, perhaps most important of all, it's the, the workplace environment, thinking about what we can do to make the workplace uh, a workplace in which a truly that will hire 
a truly diverse staff and in which uh, a diverse staff can thrive. So that we're working on a lot of different areas at the moment. One thing I wanted to mention, I guess it's like a, a kudos to you, is I did go to a, an exhibit. The most recent one I went to at the Met in New York was one that you did, or at least oversaw, um, uh, by an artist named Carrie James Marshall. And it was notable to me because he's a living artist, uh, mostly the Met you know, focuses on ones who passed, but he's also uh, a living Black artist. And I think I read somewhere that it was the first retrospective that the Met has done of a living Black artist. Um, uh, this was in 2017, but the Met has been around since 1870. So that that was the first time I realized, wow, it took 130 years for this to happen. Um, so kudos to you about that. It was a great exhibit. Uh, that does tie into my next question about when I, you know, as and also as you mentioned, uh, so much of art and and the exhibits that we go to see and are considered blockbusters are art by you know, dead white guys, uh, so to speak. And I'm looking in California art too, you know, what are some, who are some famous artists that come to mind? And uh, you had mentioned Wayne Thiebaud, who also a side note, he is alive and well here in Sacramento and he still plays tennis. Uh, I've seen him play doubles. Um, so he's one that always comes to mind. Uh, Ed Rusha, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly. Ed Rusha. Ed Rusha, thank you. John Baldessari. Uh, Shepard Ferry um, with the famous Obama um, uh, hope poster that he did. They're they're notable, but they're all white men. Um, I'm wondering what can California's art institutions, what should they be doing to bring non-white male California artists into the spotlight? Uh, you know, what could be something that, like that Carrie James Marshall exhibit I thought was great. Can't we do more of those? I mean, what, is that the plan for, is, should that be the plan? Absolutely. Yes. The the canon has been dominated sort of very much by white male artists. And I think in you know in the last 10, 15 years, a lot of modern art museums or museums showing modern art have really been making considerable efforts to show a more diverse range of artists, women artists and uh, artists of color. But this is something we're now realizing, you know, again, too little has been done. And it has, it has to be an, a, an absolute top priority to make our programs more diverse. You know, we, before COVID, we had actually, we had a, a wonderful exhibition called Soul of a Nation which looked at um, the work of African-American artists during the 1960s and 1970s. And it brought forward, it was an exhibition that had been organized by Tate Modern in England. And it brought forward um, a, a range of very, very talented artists, many of whom would individually deserve uh, a retrospective exhibition. Um, we, we had shown that at the Young Museum with, with huge, uh, very great success. And we are now in the, uh, we, we've now in our, 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 our exhibition program going forward, um, you know, reflects uh, our efforts to be much more inclusive, many more women artists and, and artists of color. We have a fabulous installation, for example, at the moment uh, at the Legion of Honor by the Kenyan artist Wangechi Mutu, who much of whose work is um, 
rooted in pushing back against patriarchal or colonial uh, values. And uh, the Legion, which is a, you know, a very traditional Beaux-Arts building with a Europe collection of European art, she's created an installation which features enormous sculptures. She, she creates these bronzes and clay sculptures that feature uh, forms sort of half, half human, half animal, very often rooted in, in African mythology or in a imagined African mythology. And the presence of these figures in the courtyard at the Legion of Honor and within the galleries of the Legion of Honor acts as a sort of a silent reminder that the art we look at at the Legion and which we blind we blithely think of as being, you know, representing great artistic developments is in fact just a small part of a bigger story. There's a whole story that's not being told. And I think that's an example of the kind of intervention that we can we can do very impactfully with in our historical collections. And at the same time, we have a responsibility to be programming um, you know, retrospectives and, and, and uh, exhibitions of both uh, women and uh, BIPOC artists, living and, and, and dead. We've got a wonderful installation at the moment that's literally just opening um, uh, tomorrow by the Chinese-American artist Hung Lu at the De Young Museum, where she's taken over the great courtyard at the center of the museum for a sort of meditation about immigration, migration and immigration. Um, this fall, we've got an exhibition about the groundbreaking African-American designer, Patrick Kelly, who tragically died of AIDS in 1990. But for a few years, he kind of lit the, the fashion scene on, on fire and was a very influential so with with exhibitions like this, you know, I think we can really um, we can expand the canon, and you know, it's 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 very it's a very exciting moment. Thinking, you know, what is what are the bigger stories we can be telling? Another thing you had talked about uh, in the blog post, and actually there there is a blog. I know there's many many staff are posting about uh, efforts to. Uh, to make the the non-race anti-racist institution and obviously staffing is something you're addressing many art institutions are addressing that now so in terms of diversifying your staff uh how what are your plans for that especially at the higher levels of management i, I feel like uh, oftentimes people are like well let's bring new young people in and you know but but maybe they don't um bring them in at the higher levels of management, running running the show or parts of the show. Um, also, there was something I, I, a quote here that I saw from uh, the CEO of the Crocker Museum here in Sacramento, Lyle Jones, who said that, suggests that the biggest problem might be unintentional bias in recruitment, such as insisting on minimum qualifications. She said, Two years ago, everyone on my visitor service desk had a master's degree. And in higher positions at museums, there's a norm that everyone has to have a PhD, and that has hurt the field. So, yes, in terms of diversifying staff and maybe reconsidering qualifications about what makes a great um, staffer at the museum, what, what are your plans for that? 
But yeah, you're, you're you're absolutely putting your finger on it. We we need to we need to diversify our staff at every level, and I think traditionally museums tend to have they've looked they've had a very narrow conception of what will equip someone for success in the museum field. As you say, it's often a PhD. It's often a PhD in a very narrow area of speciality. And at a moment when we really need to be thinking about, you know, how we make our museums relevant to wider audiences, you know, a PhD in what color toothpaste an artist used doesn't really matter a jot. You know, we've we've got to think much more widely. We have to stop going back to the same, you know, kind of networks of recommendation and the handful of museums that have provided so many curators and, and academics and, and, and administrators in museums and think 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 more widely. Um, you know, unfortunately, the turnover in senior positions at museums is quite slow. So we really need to make every position count. We need to make sure that every recruitment, we have um, a, a, a roster of diverse candidates for every position. And, you know, and we, in the meantime, we also need to think about other ways of bringing people in. So, you know, for example, we are, we've, we're, we've created a couple of new positions that will give us an opportunity, you know, hopefully to, to bring in um, candidates of, you know, diverse candidates. We've, we're creating a new role for a director of interpretation, uh, for example, in our education department, who will play a key role in helping us think about the stories we tell about our collections. But it's also at the other end. You know, we need to make sure that there is a that young younger people who may be interested in having a career in the museum field have points of entry and are nurtured and have mentoring um, so that they, because it's, you know, it's a very competitive world to get into. Salaries are not high. Um, so, it, you know, it really, it's, it's a vocation and it, it's tough getting your foot in the door. So again, to give an example, we've recently created a number of fellowships uh, for graduate students who will help us get information about our collections online into our database and i think it's you know it's it's a it, it, it's a great entry level role you know learning about cataloging learning how to look at how to think about objects and i personally will be taking a very direct interest in the the work of these young graduates and doing what i can to help mentor and support them in the future Another group of people uh, that are very important uh, to a museum is the board. Uh, obviously, many times a lot of money comes through the board. And typically they're made up, the boards are made up of white, older, rich people. Now, how should museums diversify their board to get more diverse members and diverse different point of views? And still, I mean, just to be blunt, you know, you, you have to, museums are not cheap to run and grow. Uh, you have to go where the money is. And it seems like right now the money is still with white 
uh, wealthy people. How how do you how can, do you balance that? Um, where you get a board that is diverse, but still a board that provides the money needed to run your institution. Can can those are those counterbal are those um, combining well together, or is there still a long way to go? Um, I, I think that a you know a, a strong board has uh, trustees who play different roles. And you know the old adage of give, get, or get off is a very significant part of board work in American institutions, because most most American museums are self-funding or largely self-funding. So fundraising is is a critical part of the work of of some of the trustees. But at the same time, you have other trustees have other skill sets too. You know, you have people who have expertise and they're, they're collectors, they're builders, they're lawyers. Um, and of course, and you need to have representatives of the local communities. And the, the fine art museums um, have traditionally, uh, as, as city museums, you know, we have traditionally had a number of you know, quite a di- diverse um, uh, board board members. Uh, from from different parts of the community, but that that of course is ever more important now. And in fact, we've re- we have recently set up a, a board um, working committee uh, looking at equity and diversity. And that group of trustees is working very closely with the board's nominating committee to make sure that you know as we plan for the future. We will have a truly diverse board that will reflect the um, uh, the, the diversity of the Bay Area. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but it does seem like the Fine Arts Museum in San Francisco is a little different in that the city is uh, a major funder, right? It owns the the buildings or a couple of the buildings, and so it it plays more of a role than say other museums like the Met, where it is dependent more on individual or or. Uh, foundational or uh, individual uh, donors? Well, pretty much every every museum has is, is a little bit different. Uh, in the case of the fine art museums, um, yes, we're city museums. The city owns the buildings and owns the collections, but the museums are operated by um, an independent charitable entity, a 501c3, and we get about just under <clears throat> one third of our funding each year comes from the city. And almost all of that funding goes towards the salaries and the benefits of our uh, unionized security staff. And then the, the charitable entity um, raises, it manages, it runs the museums for the city. And so it has the responsibility of making sure that we have a, you know, we're we're fundraising, we are being effective in managing our exhibition programs, selling tickets, selling memberships, and and so on. So we're a kind of a blend. And on that note, in terms of you are in San Francisco, which is the the technology hub of the world, Silicon Valley, uh, right next door. And how how does that? Um, shape your plans for the museums in terms of uh, technology, you know, what we create here in the Bay Area, how how you will use that for the museum, um, 
uh, people who've made their money in technology? Um, will they play a role? Like, how how do you see the the location of the museums in this technology hub um, affecting the the art and the way that you the that you show it? So I think that there are a number of different parts, to, a number of different answers to, the, to those questions. Um, we are certainly interested in exhibiting art by artists who are working either with digital or interested in the impact of digital. So, for example, with support from Google, we did uh, an installation by an artist called Anna Pravachki where as you walk through the museum on your through google you would get insights or see images in different parts of the museum so that was a kind of a fun experiment uh, more recently we've done an exhibition about the impact of artificial intelligence on modern life and that was an exhibition that featured the work of about, of about 15 artists. Um, some of them were, you know, really pointing out the, the really the detrimental impact of artificial intelligence. Um, uh, you know, the way that it's been used to, for example, um, Lynn Hirschman Neeson has made a film about the way that artificial intelligence is used to monitor people, the amount of information that is being aggregated about all of us by government databases, by private databases. Um, so, you know, we're looking at the good and the bad. Um, we're also looking at the way it's changing our thinking. There's a, a wonderful piece in the exhibition that we actually acquired by an artist called Pierre Huyg, which shows a crouching figure and in place of a head, you have a beehive. And it's a kind of poetic, uh, as the bees are coming and going, it's a kind of reminder about the way that both our brains are made up of, you know, atoms that generate thought. Um, we don't really quite understand how, but also how we as individuals are part of a hive mentality. We're part of humankind. And this is a wonderful sculpture that's actually sitting out in our in our sculpture garden at the moment. So, so we're very interested in in showcasing and engaging with art that is digital or is about digital. I think the other part to your question is how we engage with those people, um, the technologists themselves, and this is the kind of the million dollar question for many cultural institutions today literally <laughs> literally you know we would we would all love to get you know as some of the traditional funders who've been so generous to cultural institutions in the past have you know, their families have died out or their interests have moved in other directions we need to find the funders for the future and we need to make a, a strong case to the people who've done so well in technology or in venture capital, that we are institutions that need funding. And I think here it's really on us. You know, we are sometimes in the past, museums have been seen as, you know, kind of party palaces for, you know, the upper class. And that's wrong. You know, we're not. We are fundamentally educational establishments. 
and we exist for the community we serve. So we need to be we need to be walking the walk. We need to be serving those communities. We need to be and we need to be showing the metrics that will justify and get get people excited about the, the, our, our mission. Um, you know, we've recently launched a, a free Saturday program, and it's 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 expensive. We have a lot of programming around it, but it's managed. It it's doubled our attendance on Saturdays, and it has brought in a much more diverse audience. So I think it's it's it's, it's initiatives like that that we need to be able to undertake to measure their impact and then take that out as you know that's that's our calling card look at what we're doing uh, but we have to, we have to make the case that did tie into my question there you you partly answered it about you know encouraging a more diverse and younger audience to to come to museums um so i was going to ask about the the free saturday and i was also going to ask about the de young open that you had mentioned up top because uh when i read about that i immediately thought about the academy in France that opened up art for anyone. Well, mostly, I guess, there were judges. But that's how Impressionism uh, made its mark by shocking and then people seeing it, if I'm correct. So that's what came to mind. And I, I thought that was interesting. I also thought it was interesting that uh, you opened it for submissions a week after the murder of George Floyd. So I was wondering if that made an impact. So if you can just tell me about the De Young Open and uh, what what um, impact it made and what impressions you you came away from that with. Sure. So I think that all too often, you know, people museums have they've they've been too academic. You know, we too many museums show art with surrounded by kind of basic a lot of bullshit and long terms and people don't understand what they're talking about and ultimately art is all around us it's part of our lives and for me the most important thing about a museum is helping our visitors inspiring them giving them a sense of how art can be part of their lives and empowering them in their own creativity and you know, we had, in order to celebrate our 125th anniversary at the De Young in 2020, we had been thinking about how we could do that. And one of the ideas that had been brought forward was, well, maybe we should do an exhibition and invite Bay Area artists to submit. But we hadn't got very far with the planning when COVID hit and everything got thrown up in the air. And then as we were thinking about how, you know, what we could do, we thought, oh my goodness, this would be such a great thing to do right now for the community. And so we had thrown ourselves into planning and we did this open call. And it was, it was coincidental that the open call for submissions went out a week after the murder of George Floyd. But while the timing was coincidental, the, that event had a massive impact on the character of some of the art, a lot of the art that was submitted. We had, it, it was quite extraordinary. In total, we had 11,500 submissions 
from more than 6,000 artists. And the subject matter ranged across a huge array of different subjects. Some was abstract, some was landscapes, some was portraits, but a lot was quite activist. It, you know, it was about homelessness. It was about the city. It was about polit politics. And because of the George Floyd murder, uh, no surprise, we had a lot of artists created very moving, visceral, uh, visual manifestations of their grief and their anger about that event. And so we actually started the exhibition with a wall of portrayals of George Floyd and other BIPOC victims of uh, systemic racism and violence in a larger gallery that was very about politics. So the exhibition, in the end, we had, we selected about 750 works and they were hung floor to ceiling, corner to corner. It was overwhelming. It was incredibly exciting. And it really felt like a cross section of what people were thinking. The Bay Area artists were kind of reflecting what, what everyone was thinking in, in that moment. And in fact, although, although the show was only open for 10 weeks, because we opened in October and then we had to close down again in, at the end of November, it was such a success, such a morale boost for our own staff, such a morale boost for everybody who was involved, who, who saw the exhibit, that we're in fact going to do, make it into a triennial. So every three years, we're going to showcase art by Bay Area artists in this, what I hope is a very generous way. And, and the artists, the, a lot of the art was for sale. It was a the proceeds went 100% to the artists. So it felt, it felt a good thing to be able to do in that moment. My last question for you is, now that you've been here for, I guess, a couple of years or going on there here in California and have obviously experienced a lot in that past couple of years, what, based on that, what advice would you give to other museums and arts institutions in California for supporting artists and getting uh, more people to see the art of California, and also advice you would give to people who love art and uh, may want to support in ways uh, besides going to museums. Uh, how how can that ecosystem thrive here in California? I think that you know this is if you work in an art museum, this is a challenging time because you know for, for financial reasons or because there is this, we are right in the center in many ways of this big public debate, this recalibration of this, this racial reckoning. And museums in some respect are, are like a kind of a public forum for this discussion. And it's in this time of you know, social media and cancel culture, there's a lot of heat and rhetoric in the air and it's kind of painful sometimes but i also think it's incredibly exciting this is this is perhaps a moment of the greatest change in museums in america since many of them were founded in the late 19th or early 
20th century. And I think of it as an amazing privilege to be in my role at this moment, trying to steer the fine art museums forward, trying to rethink the stories we tell about through our exhibitions or through the objects in our galleries. You know, we're doing a lot of work rewriting labels, trying to be more objective about the circumstances in which artists or patrons lived, what they thought, trying to make sure that we don't blithely pass on blinkered points of view. So I think the work we're doing is really exciting and it's made all the more exciting by that participation and engagement from the public. So, you know, I'd say, you know, come to your museums, engage, write, you know, listen to our podcasts, um, get involved. We, I think for the longest time, museums in a post-war era, museums thought of themselves and positioned themselves as neutral spaces. And what we've come to realize is that is bullshit. We were not neutral. We were consciously or unconsciously reinforcing systemic racism. But now we can do something about it. And so it's, 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 it's incredibly exciting. There's so much work to be done. So what can people do? They can, if they've got finances, they can help get involved, help support programs. But you know, with or without money, just get involved, express what you think, get involved with your museums because they're not boring, dusty, dry old places. They are, they are crucibles of create creativity. And they are, they're like the litmus test for this, this experiment that is America. You know, it's, it, it's a form of discussion. Get, get, go there, get, get involved. Well, I, I will be going to the Legion of Honor and the De Young next month. I'm even more excited to go now after talking with you. Uh, very inspiring talk. Thank you so much, Thomas, for, for what you've done and what you will be doing um, here in California. I, and I appreciate your time. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. Hi, this is Caleb Clark, executive producer of California Groundbreakers Podcasts. We're working on more episodes of This Changes Everything, literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreaker supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on the right-hand side of our podcast page on SoundCloud, that's at soundcloud.com slash californiagroundbreakers, or click on the Donate tab of our homepage of our website at californiagroundbreakers.org. And if you have questions to ask about how California will change in post-pandemic times, or you want to suggest a topic to cover, or an expert to interview for an episode of This Changes Everything, Email us at info at californiagroundbreakers.org and give us a few details so we can get in touch. Thanks for lending us your ears and giving us your support as well. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our look at the future of art in California. 
So in part one, we talked about the fine arts and about museums where people go into to see paintings and sculptures and other pieces that often were created many years ago, even centuries ago. But for this segment, I thought it would be good to talk about public art, like murals, which people see as they walk past or drive by, and you can often see them right as they're being created that day. Sometimes the murals stay for years and are preserved for posterity. Other times they're wiped away and maybe painted over with another mural that marks that specific point of time. And at this specific point of time, I'm talking about the years 2020 and 2021, which have been marked by so many life-changing events, it felt to me that public art has never been more relevant, more thought-provoking, more historic, and maybe a lot of it created in the past year should be preserved for posterity. As my guest here put it in a past interview, quote, the writing is on the wall. Graffiti and murals are the modern-day hieroglyphics. Public art has always signified what the people of a society have been through and dream of, unquote. And that guest that I want to introduce you to now is Andre Jones, a.k.a. Natty Rebel, who is an illustrator, designer, and muralist. And in 2020, he did work in collaboration with organizations like the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, the Golden State Warriors, and Shake Shack. And maybe the most notable project he did last year was leading the creation of murals on the street, literally on the street, painting Black Lives Matter in bright, bold yellow letters on three blocks of 15th Street in downtown Oakland, and also on a stretch of the street leading to San Francisco City Hall. Andre is also the founder and director of the Bay Area Mural Program, BAMP for short. It is a nonprofit organization in Oakland that manages and facilitates the creation of public and private art murals in the Bay Area. Their vision is to turn bare-blooded walls into artistic gateways into the community's surrounding environment. And so far, BAMP has created 100-plus murals in 16 communities, and it also hosts the annual Art Clash in Oakland, I think which has happened uh, recently this summer, which offers a variety of workshops and events for local artists to engage with the community. So Andre, I'm very, I'm so excited to talk with you today. Thanks for taking the time. I know you're working on a mural right now and sitting in your car, I guess, after making a run to Home Depot for more, Home Depot for more paint. So I'm glad I got you. Thank you for having me. It's a joy to be here. All right. So I'm going to ask my first question, which is like the biographical question for you. Um, so you were born and raised in Northern Virginia. You grew up there. And then you lived in Brooklyn Correct. and Philadelphia. And so the East Coast. And you've also spent a lot of time in Africa doing murals there in various countries. Um, and then you moved here to the Bay Area, California's Bay Area, 10 years ago. So it's been a decade. So my first question for you is what brought you out here to California uh, since your life was had so many roots in um, back on the East Coast? And as an artist, what has your experience been with the art scene here compared to the art scenes you've been involved with back on the East Coast? I was just wondering if there were any differences, contrasts, or maybe a lot of similarities. Oh, all of the above. Um, so let's start with what brought me to California. Um, California, so what it originally brought me was a reggae tour with some of my buddies that have a band uh, down in the Virgin Islands. Shout out to iGrade Records. Um, <laughs> they brought me on their initial reggae tour. So basically I was driving the van and watching the merchandise. So I'd sell and watch their CDs and albums while also selling my T-shirts and artwork that I had printed up and, and made on the East Coast. 
We came out here for a California tour. We toured all the way from San Diego through LA, through um, Oakland, all the way up to Oregon, Washington. Um, and I just fell in love with the Bay Area. LA was great. The weather was nice. The water was wonderful. Um, but the Bay, especially Oakland, just really resonated with me as a, it just felt familiar like one of the East Coast cities. So living in Philadelphia, Brooklyn, New York, Harlem, New York, Washington, D.C. Um, yeah, it just resonated. It had that familiarity. Um, and I didn't know if it was just because of the percentage of, of African-Americans in Oakland or the diversity or, um, you know, really just all of the above. And what kind of art do you create? You know, I guess like a, a general uh, overview of of um, the the art and the inspiration uh, behind it. And then, you know, living here in Northern California, how has that shaped or changed how you create art? Um, hmm. I don't think I've changed the way I create art, but what I do like to do is submerge myself in communities and really get in tune with the heartbeat of that community and really try and engage and have that conversation with them on the wall, in the mural. So whatever's going on in that community, whether it be nationwide or even just more specific to a, a local neighborhood, I really like to engage and have a conversation with them on the wall there so that it's something that they can take pride in, something that they can enjoy looking at on a daily basis and something that I can um, really just, like I said, just have that conversation. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because uh, I, I guess we're going to focus on murals now specifically since you've created so many of them. And to me, that just seems like the a huge canvas uh, out in the open, people walking by and driving by while you're doing it. And then the finished pro product, people are seeing in a different way than they're seeing in a, in a museum. So I'm wondering if, if that uh, influences or, or, or impacts how you create a mural. Um, and then again, like you had just mentioned up there about that sense of place, the sense of culture, you know, how you approach that based on where you're, you know, creating your giant canvas. Yeah. So I feel like all the above. Um, I, I really love to take on the, the murals in a sense of like what pretty much what you wouldn't see in a gallery. Or even when I was starting my art career in the uh, you know mid nineties, you weren't gonna see too much urban art, too much graffiti. Um, these things were still kind of frowned upon or looked at as just street art. So you weren't gonna really see this type of artwork in galleries, but to me, the streets or even like, you know, subway tunnels or train, like these were always like just public galleries these were the, the art this is the artwork that i fell in love with i was one of those little kids that would go into the regular museum and just almost be bored by you know the very um you know neo-roman you know almost colonial-esque uh statues and even artwork to where it really just didn't intrigue me so for me it was really just kind of like identifying what really inspired me what moved me and really just kind of project that out. And I found that there were other people that had the same story that were like, uh, you know, 
the museum doesn't really talk to me. I'm really interested in these other things. And when I see your artwork, it touches upon those subject matters. And, you know, I love that. And really it's, it's those conversations prior to the mural being created, after the mural being created, to where I feel like it's a dialogue about culture, about the heartbeat of communities, about what people are really engaging and really trying to become. And I wanted to ask you now about the Bay Area Mural Project. What inspired you to start it? And just give us an overview of, you know, what you're, what you're doing, especially now today uh, with public art, just, just being more in, in literally in people's uh, faces and, uh, and, and being so interesting. Yeah, definitely. So with my history, I've always worked with um, arts organizations, after school programs, nonprofits uh, to engage youth in artistic uh, creation. So I spent a good portion of my career working in Philadelphia for the Philadelphia Mural Arts Program. So really just being inspired by the amount of murals that they worked on, the amount of artists that they worked with, the amount of communities that they served, um, really just taking that as a blueprint and bringing that over to the Bay with me and my artwork. Um, Initially, when I moved to the Bay, I was really more focused on my individual career. But even as I, you know, even as I got more work, I realized that I needed a team on one aspect. And two, um, I also wanted to provide that opportunity that I feel like I didn't really receive um, in my artistic uh, uh, career to where, you know, even as a Black artist in, in Philadelphia and in New York, there were times where I ran into walls to where, you know, people were like, ah, that subject matter is a little too militant or maybe just a little too black or maybe a little too pro-black. And to me, I'd be like, ah, but this is just a painting of a black family. There's no violence in here. There's no... But sometimes like, you know, people aren't ready for certain subject matters. I feel like now post pandemic, um, even during the pandemic, during the protests, during the murder of George Floyd, I feel like people really had to open their eyes and broaden their scope of what is social justice? What is, you know, equity and equality? Um, what is proper representation? Um, even after the Me Too movement, I feel like now people are ready to have the conversations about inclusion and about proper representation and making sure that if we're talking about certain subject matters, that we have the right people being represented and the right artists or the right people engaged in the project so that we have the outcome that we're looking for. Yeah, I, I that leads into my next question just perfectly because 2020 happened and so much happened with it. And just like you were saying, um, so many spotlights shining now on uh, post-George Floyd aftermath. So I am wondering if you could give give us some detail about how that how this past year has affected you and and made you take action as a person and as an artist because like I mentioned up in your when I was reading about your biography, you know those those Black Lives Matter front and center in Oakland and near San Francisco City Hall was definitely uh, uh, an action. So yeah, how how has this past year affected you and take and made you take action in a way that you hadn't before? Yeah, so um, pretty much it's just staying on track with my mission. Um, I feel like with the whole protest and the killing of George Floyd, um, 
you know, I, I really, as an artist, have always been focused on equity, social, social justice, social injustice, um, have tried to express it in my artwork. So I feel like me personally, I haven't really changed my message or changed my actions. It's really just focusing my energy and, and really putting that into my organization, the Bay Area Mural Program, and making sure that not only the 17 artists that work on our team and our staff, um, but just everybody that we engage with, you know, is really just looking at the equity in arts, in, in Hollywood, in representation across the board in all industries, not just the arts, but I feel like, you know, the public art is a great place to start. Um, just because we've all had situations to where, you know, we just haven't felt inadequate or equal to someone else who's getting paid more than us or in a school situation. So even, you know, with my little, my, my daughter, she, you know, had to play with, uh, white dolls. So, yeah, I feel that now more than ever, we can address situations and talk about or even have conversations that we weren't having when I was a child. Um, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000, uh, people weren't talking about social inequity. Um, you didn't hear the term white supremacy on TV or coming out of news broadcasters' mouth. Um, so now I feel like after the Me Too movement, after the pandemic, people are in a place to where we want to address the issues that haven't been talked about. Um, we want to make sure that indigenous people are protected. We want to make sure that Asian people are protected. We want to make sure that Black lives not only just matter, but have equal representation in all the industries that they've worked hard in. Um, we want to make sure that women are getting paid the same and have the same representation that men, if they're working just as hard as a man, they should be getting paid just as much as him. So I feel like um, the public art for me is just a great place to start and have these conversations. Uh, when you see an empowered uh, Chicano or Ohlone or African-American woman, big and broad in your face, you, you know, if you hate that image, then we really have to have that conversation of why you hate this image. Um, if you love this image, I want to have that conversation as well, too, of why you love this image. And I feel like now, more than ever, people are open to having these conversations, you know, even after going through, you know, not even just the <laughs> pandemics, but even the whole uh, Trump presidency. I feel like there was a lot of just extra tension that's built up unnecessarily and we go around having these conversations as opposed to just sitting down with one another and having these conversations and i feel like yeah art is just a great place to start and tying into that i'm wondering about the financials of art i i read an article in the wall street journal yesterday actually about how the art world obviously has been shaken up that's that's why we're that's why i'm doing this podcast episode but they were saying how, like with the art collectors, they are really looking at um, artists of color now in a way that they never did before. They want to collect art that really reflects modern times, not just, you know, old masters and so forth. I'm wondering if you're seeing that, you know, as it does translate down to what you're doing 
with BAMP uh, as an artist? Do you see artists uh, that you know and you getting more recognition? Is that translating to financial or do you think it will? You know, just the the reality of, um, you know, art needs to uh, be created, uh, but you also need to pay the bills and people value art. They'll, they, if they love it, they will, you know, buy an art they love. So how, how is that, is that aspect of art changing? Do you think? Yes. Um, I can definitely attest to being more productive, being called more, um, even during the pandemic when there wasn't a lot of opportunity for work. Um, it was just ironic, you know, just in the midst of all the hardship and devastation. Um, my phone was ringing off the hook with people wanting, you know, social justice artwork like never before. Um, I tried to post social justice images or or universal themes and prior murals to where people were just kind of like, no, nah, we don't want that. And it was, you know, it it's just ironic. It's almost funny. But um, yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing that, you know, now people, and not just, I won't just say people, but now, like you said, art collectors, investors, property owners um, are looking at the art in a more valuable way, which is financially beneficial. And that's where, you know, I, like I stated before, it's just for me to make sure that Within my nonprofit, within the Bay Area Mural Program, we're letting artists be exposed. So even as I'm individually gaining more work, you know, intentionally shining that light on a group of other artists that I know are just as amazing, that are just as underrepresented, that I feel really need the opportunity to shine. And I feel like now there is, we used to have a, a saying that, you know, people would like to hire like the token Negro, you know, just kind of like, as long as we meet our quota by having just one, you know, it's like you get one. And, and I feel like now we're gone past that. Just, you know, people being comfortable just seeing one. It's like, you know what? It's okay. If you have an all, you know, uh, BIPOC or POC um, organization, or it's okay. If you have a construction crew, that is all Ohlone or indigenous. Um, like there shouldn't be a problem, you know, like with just seeing, you know, like growth and diversity. You know, that also made me think about youth and young artists because it feels like, you know, street art, you know, uh, graffiti You know, used to be, I think you mentioned this, it was used to be seen as like not one at all. And now there's, you know, graffiti and murals and just anything on the street can be, maybe not anything, but everything can be considered um, public art in a way that, you know, that really appeals to youth. And I, I asked this question because we've done a few episodes in this in this podcast series about how young people have really changed things up during the pandemic and they have been shaped in many ways uh, by the pandemic. So I was just wondering in the, in the perspective of art, you know, in your role at, at, at BAMP, um, and getting more youth into art and creating art, um, how is that going? I, I, how, how do youth, how are youth responding to art and being more involved in art? Yeah. So we are, um, currently working at four schools with the, uh, Golden State Warriors and the Adobe, 
the people at Adobe to work at four schools with lead artist Timothy B. Uh, we just finished doing a workshop and a mural at Head Over Heels Gymnasium um, in Emeryville. So we are, you know, stretching out, reaching out to as many organizations, youth-based uh, programs to where we can implement art into their daily life. Um, not only just leaving a mural, but actually doing programs, facilitating workshops to where they get to create, they get to express. Um, and as I explain in a lot of my classes and workshops when I'm working with the youth and even with adults, um, I always hear that, you know, that, that never ending tale, oh, well, I can't draw and I'm not good at art. And to me, it's not even about what, when I'm working with young people, it's not about teaching them to be great artists. It's about teaching them another language to express themselves in. So just the same way that you write and you type and you text and you can use sign language, art is just another vehicle and another way to communicate. And a lot of people have used art. Matter of fact, every person that I know who has a pair of sneakers or rides in a car or lives in a house Somebody had to design that car, that shoe, that house. So they might not have been the best artist, but they were able to communicate what they wanted to see to a designer, to somebody who could build the house, to an architect. So it's about having that communication skill of being able to get, if you go to another country and you can't speak the language, but you can draw what it is that you're looking for or what you need, you have now just gained a friend and stepped further into communicating with somebody who speaks a completely different language. So to me, it's, it's about developing that tool. And every time somebody's like, oh, well, I can't draw it to me is like me saying, oh, well, I can't write. And it's like, I might not be the greatest writer. You know, matter of fact, my grammar is pretty bad, but I can communicate enough to where you understand what I'm saying. And I feel like everybody should at least have that capability at least be able to hone that gift of being able to communicate in as many ways as they possibly can. So a couple more questions for you. I wanted to see if you have a piece of public art somewhere in California that, uh, that really resonates with you right now and that you would recommend people see it. And it could be uh, something that you created, something that someone else has created, a section of a neighborhood or some walk, you know, down through a public art that, that, that you, that you like, and, and most importantly, just really resonates with you because it reflects what's going on now here in California. Yeah. I'm going to have to say, um, we are currently highlighted in a black liberation walking tour in the Hoover Foster community of Oakland. Um, so right now they have, they're building a website to where they're I think they actually did their first tour um, and it's super special to us because pretty much when I start or even before starting BAMP, I did a lot of murals um, in the West Oakland community, Hoover Foster particularly. So I have a bunch of murals in that area that still are existing from 2014, 15. Um, and then we've also created a few murals in that same community close to our new headquarters over at the California Hotel. Um, we've done murals from there, going down San Pablo Avenue to 30th Street. So the walking tour pretty much is um, in that community, in that area. And we're about to start working on a new mural 
on San Pablo on 30th. We're actually painting over a mural that me, Kiss My Black Arts, and a few other uh, street artists had worked on in 2015 with a more community-based mural. I'm not going to tell people what is the, what's the subject matter. They're just going to have to come check it out in <laughs> August. But the rest of the murals are up for people to, to come and walk and check out. But yeah, keep an eye out or listen out for the Black Liberation Walking Tour because um, it's going to be super fun. Oh, yeah. I think I saw something about that, the tour on on the web somewhere. So I'm going to pull that out because I, I do. We will have a, a resource guide listed uh, in the podcast description. I'm going to have links to BAMP. Um, some of your artwork, your Instagram page, and then that liber- that uh, that tour, that walking tour. Sweet, great. And then, last question for you. Uh, I, I guess that the the forecast of the future of public art in in the Bay Area in California. How do you see the future of that going? And then, part two to that question is, you know, what can we Californians do to boost public art? Let, like lift up the importance of public art in general, and to support artists and boost them up as well. Definitely. Um, The face of California public art, I feel like, is changing, just as all of the industries in America. Um, You know, no different than the presidency, you know, and it's that elephant in the room that a lot of people don't want to talk about or address. But I feel like now is the time to address it without, you know, people feeling any type of way. But just like the presidency, the majority of our presidents have been all Caucasian, uh, Caucasian men. (laughs) <laughs> and the same way in the art industry, Hollywood, um, most of the industries in this country, it's the same story. So what we're looking for and what we're excited about seeing change is the face of public art in the Bay Area and throughout California. Um, not to say I have a bunch of white Caucasian male friends that are artists that are super great, super dope at what they do. And I would not want to see any less of their work um, out in the public. But I do also want to see some of the Ohlone and African-American and Latino brothers and sisters that are just as talented, represented in the public art and receiving the same amount of pay for being just as talented um, and the same amount of notoriety. And so I feel like this is what is the goal, and I see the difference already. I already start to see things change. Even as I apply for grants, the people that I um, see that used to win grants nonstop, you know, over the course of the past 10 years now, you know, we're getting different representation in the people that are receiving these grants and the pools of money to actually, you know, spread it out into different communities. So I feel like this is the future of public art, and I'm excited about it. Well, I'm excited too. After talking with you, I want to I want to go see art um, and uh, your art too, and the art that Bamp has created. So, I know you have to go off and do another mural. So we're going to let you get out of the yes. car. But I just want to say thank you again for your time and for your words and your work. Thank you, Vanessa, and you have a great day. And thank you for hosting me. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers, This Changes Everything, episode 18, which was recorded on July 13th and 14th, 2021. Thanks to Thomas Campbell of the Fine Arts Museum of California and Andre Jones of the Bay Area Mural Program for joining us. Thanks to Nate Graham and Caleb Clark for recording and producing this podcast. 
And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcasts worth listening to in these topsy-turvy times, please make a donation and support our efforts to produce informative and inspiring conversations about what Californians should expect in the post-pandemic future. You can do that, as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes, events, and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.